Hi everyone, I'm Dilan Devkumar and welcome to the third episode of the Race and Health podcast. Today's episode is on structural racism and this is a slightly fuzzy concept that underlies many of the health issues we see today in minoritized people. My trigger for doing this podcast was a recent government report, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, that came out in March 2021. This was led by Dr. Tony Sewell and a quote from the report Put simply, we no longer see a Britain where the system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. The impediments and disparities do exist, they are varied, and ironically, very few of them are directly to do with racism. Too often racism is a catch-all explanation and can be simply implicitly accepted rather than explicitly examined. And it's fair to say this came under a fair amount of criticism. So what I was hoping to do today with all of you is to explicitly examine some of the concepts in this report. We've got Dr. Michelle Morse, who is the Deputy Commissioner for the Centre for Health Equity and Community Wellness and the inaugural Chief Medical Officer at the New York City Health Department. She's an internal medicine and public health doctor and assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School. We've then got Dr. Rochelle Burgess, who's a lecturer in global health in the Institute for Global Health in UCL and the BAME Attainment Gap Lead. Rochelle is a community health psychologist who specializes in community-based approaches to health. And finally, Dr. Kavian Kulasubanathan, who is our race and health representative and also junior doctor who works on sociopolitical determinants of health, particularly race and class. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. Kavian, can I come to you first? Can you tell us a little more detail about the SOAR report and where it came from? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dylan. So the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities was convened by Prime Minister Boris Johnson to investigate race and ethnic disparities in the UK. Its kind of mandate was to consider, in their own words, important questions about the state of race relations, to examine why so many disparities persist and what can be done to eliminate or mitigate them. And this kind of this commission was headed up by, as you said, Dr. Tony Sewell and several other commissioners from a range of disciplines, though none from a health and equities background in that. Um, and, and, and the resulting report is what we were recording, the, the Sewell report. So that's kind of the context. And, and it's interesting, there's a really big section on health without any health specialists contributing. So why, why did they do it? Um, so, so, so that's all the context that's explicitly uh, referenced or given. But I mean, given the timing, the broader landscape within which it sits is, is obviously a that I suppose that the, the spotlighting or, or the foregrounding of uh, police brutality all around the world, you know, in, in the US, sure, but, but also in, in lots of other places. And then obviously COVID related health disparities that we see within minoritized or, or racialized populations. So, so I'd, I'd imagine that, that those two really drove the, the trigger for this report. So one of the big things is this discussion on structural racism, and they, they make a big deal of trying to define what these issues are. But before we come to the report explicitly, Rochelle, can you just tell us what structural racism is and why this concept is important? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few ways that you can define it, but ultimately where all of these definitions kind of converge is an agreement on the, the totality of the way in which racism operates. And so what structural racism is actually asking us to do is to consider how racism works in every layer, every space, every dimension of people's lives. So not just in institutions, but also in sort of cultural institutions through historical systems and the way that historically social systems have been set up, um, the different beliefs and values and culture and way culture is practiced, how they can ultimately manifest in ways that reify discriminatory practice, 
in Patricia Hill Collins's work where she introduces her matrices of domination. And so she's got these four sort of fields in which power works in people's lives. And what she's asking us to do in making sense of oppression is to understand that it doesn't just work at structural levels or institutional levels, but also interpersonally through people who enforce rules in institutions and sort of manifest them in our relationships with each other, the way people are monitored in spaces where they live and work and reside, um, and also to the hegemonic domains and, and the ways in which we make sense of the world itself that play into the decisions that people make in systems in places. So if you don't use a term like structural racism, you don't get at that totalitarianness of it the way it is in every space and every corner of people's lives. And to dismiss it, that, that basically, I know we're not talking about the report right now, but when they sort of tried to say that, that's when for me, my brain was just like, I can't engage with this. This is this report itself is just going to be violence. Well, Calvin, can you tell us how they do define it in the report? I mean, what, what did they say? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's worth picking up on what you, you know, echoing what you said is that it's interesting that they centre language and definitions in the report. Sewell and, and his commissioners set up uh, firstly institutional racism as applicable to an institution that is racist or discriminatory in terms of its processes, policies, attitudes or behaviours. And that's within a single institution. So he kind of sets that apart as institutional racism. And then he defines uh, a structural racism as describing a legacy of historic racist or discriminatory processes, policies, attitudes or behaviours that continue to shape organisations and societies today. Maybe Rochelle, do you, I mean, do you want to come back on that? How, how does that compare to your, I guess, much bigger definition? Yeah, I guess I guess for me, there's not enough differentiation there between those two. He sort of says institutional racism is one place and then structural racism might be multiple places that sort of have legacies. But I guess it doesn't think about the fact that institutions are populated by people. I guess one of the things I often think about is how, how racism moves, how racism travels, how these things become manifest. And they are manifest through ideas through people, through policies, and you can have policies at multiple levels. So it's important if you think about an institution, how is that related to a broader idea in society, a broader policy space in the world that has ideas around equity or difference or fairness? I, I mean, for me, that that definition sort of starts to look in that direction, but it doesn't get the fact that actually it is much more diffused than that. and and trying to really sort of call us to the fact that it is everywhere. It is in all these domains of our lives. Those sort of definitions make me think, okay, you can leave an institution and then stop experiencing racism. Just go outside the door and then you'll be fine, when, when actually that's not how structures in society work. Michelle, can I bring you in as our, our expert from across the Atlantic? Um, so these discussions have been going on for a long time in the US and have been recently amplified. Can you give your thoughts on this? I have to say, I was floored and flabbergasted by the report in particular because it's coming at a time of racial justice awakening globally. And that has happened generation after generation after generation. But I think our generation right now is experiencing global racial justice movement. And it's amazing for me to see how the struggle connects around the world in so many ways, and then to see this kind of a report at a time when the visibility of racial injustice, the deadliness, the violence, 
um, of racial justice is more visible than ever, both through criminal legal reform and Black Lives Matter organizing, as well as through the like the violence, pain, and injustice of disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color, with these uh, being some of the most dramatic, again, violent, preventable, unjust examples of racial injustice, that this report seeks to invisibilize all of that or or undermine it or um, delegitimize it is, is just painful. And so I just want to acknowledge that because I know that you all are in this struggle every day um, and trying to to make it clear why these frameworks are so important for us to understand how our societies make that structure more visible. So I was flabbergasted by it. I also, the other thought that I had in both listening to the conversation um, just now and, and, and thinking about the report, a very similar thing happened, not quite at this scale, in the U.S. recently, where the JAMA uh, you know, podcast is now infamous, I think, amongst folks who are looking at racism um, and healthcare. And essentially, uh, you know, they kind of did in that podcast what happened in this report in a way, right? The people in the podcast kind of questioned the existence of structural racism. One of the tweets related to the podcast was, how can there be structural racism when doctors aren't racist? Which is, you know, again, just the lie of the century, right? Of course, doctors are racist and of course, structural racism exists. But what's important, I think, uh, about the JAMA podcast saga in the US is that there were consequences. In fact, the editor in chief of JAMA, again, the, the probably the most prominent and most well-respected medical journal in our country, resigned because of this, as did the editor who oversaw the actual podcast episode. And that was because of organizing, right? And it would have been much harder for that to have happened if it wasn't happening in the context of mass critical consciousness around everything from George Zimmerman not being convicted of murder back in 2013 up to George Floyd and beyond, right? So this happened in a moment of racial justice uprising and therefore it was easier to make that change. But but then I, I also just wanna mention how important outcomes are and I think you all are already doing this work, right? The data is part of the way we prove the impact of structural racism, right? And so in the US, the fight for that data is ongoing. Can I pick up on your first point about timing? Because one thing I'm really interested in is why we have this report and why it came out at the time that it did, because the timing is important when lots of people, lots of organizations are having these discussions. And for this report to be structured in the way that it was to come out at the time that it did come out, I think is actually very significant. And I wonder, Rochelle, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? You're going to get me in trouble now. But basically, yeah, that was not an accident. I felt I very much for the first time in sort of the many, many years I've lived in the UK where I felt that the conversation about racism and anti-Black violence and oppression and the experience of sort of, and I'll, I use the term Black as politically Black, so people of colour in the UK was sort of starting to reach that critical mass. Like all of a sudden people were like, this isn't just America, this is also us. This is our experience. This is our life here in the UK and we need to do something about it. And then this report comes out and not only does it try to explain away in basically the country that beat everybody else at colonialism, I'm trying to say that though that history has nothing to do with the present. And then they also, spent time in that report pitting different groups of color against each other, like trying to reify the model minority myth and saying like, 
all black people would be having the same levels of suffering and not thinking about sort of intersectionality of experience, different sort of proximity to other forms of resources. Just try to make the whole thing about the individual. They are about individualizing and moving away from collective responsibility. When you think about where the whole world is, not just in talking about the impacts of, of racism and structural racism and structural inequalities, but also the health conversation and how those two relate. It's so backward that they managed to publicly put it out there proudly. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were really trying to distance themselves from having to take collective responsibility for these movements that were happening, you know, because of lots of other reasons that we don't have time to talk about. <laughs> Can I jump in really quickly? Just, just to say, I think like drawing on the individualization aspect of what you were speaking about and the way that you, earlier on, you set up the real interplay between various levels of which racism kind of pervades. But picking up, especially on the kind of individualization aspect of it, I think that the report speaks a lot about agency and and this idea of like you know you must have agency you know you spoke about model minorities that like people have agency to, to drive different outcomes which completely kind of ignores the idea that agency and decision making is is constrained by structural forces right like you know loads of people that are great you know Amartya Sen or Osri the Venkat has have written about capabilities and the, the fact that for health justice to happen you need to have the capability to be able to, to, to attain or, or make those choices and actually it's the economic political commercial broader conditions that allow you to be able to make choices that lead to good health so this idea of setting up that different people have different outcomes and that it's down to individual choice and agency completely falls down really so yeah I I agree with you I mean one thing that struck me was it's almost going a little bit further even that it's this is about control of information this is about setting up what is right and what's wrong and what's allowed to be spoken about. And it even links to a previous announcement about critical race theory, about how we're not meant to teach critical race theory in schools. Absolutely. When white supremacists organize themselves for transnational attacks against critical race theorists, you know we're on the right track when it comes to racial justice. And it's kind of shocking to me that critical race theory is one of the flashpoints in this. Um, And I'm so thankful for the journalists and researchers and academics like, uh, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones and many others who are really um, trying to continue to push for critical consciousness being built at scale. Personally, I was also actually uh, attacked by coordinated networks of white supremacists online and through right-wing social media. Over 20 articles about some of the work that I've been doing came out in right-wing social media, including Tucker Carlson Carlson and Fox News. Um, And it was all on this point of, you know, they are extremely scared of critical race theory. So I would say, yes, I mean, the fact that we're already seeing bills in local legislatures uh, against critical race theory in the United States, banning critical race theory from being taught in schools, we know we're on the right track. Just to say, it's so nice to to hear you explicitly talk about critical consciousness and, and, and its importance at sort of small and large scale, because you can essentially take away CRT, but what that actually is, is just trying to give people a platform to understand the connections between society and their lives and their outcomes. As we move forward, as we protect ourselves, as we keep the movement going, critical consciousness is it. I get, I, I see what they're trying to do. It's not going to stop people from becoming aware of their place in the world and the connections that determine how their place in the world sort of manifests. 
let's move on to health specifically. So, Michelle, can you tell us why structural racism is important for health and health outcomes? Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, ultimately, I, I often use Kamara Jones's definition of structural racism, um, which is, you know, uh, it, it's a system, right? Not a person. So it's a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on how one identifies, which is what we call race, that systematically advantages white folks, disadvantages people of color, and saps the strength of the whole entire society. And so if you think about it that way, and then you look at life expectancy in the United States, last year, or I should say in 2019, before COVID, 78.8 years for white folks, 75.3 years for black folks. That gap has really not narrowed in six decades. That is not a matter of biology or physiology, right? If we use race as a social and political construct by definition, um, then this is actually a policy choice by a society to let people die young, um, let people die unjustly earlier than they should. Um, and it's also not to say that the white life expectancy is the standard, right? That's not even the gold standard necessarily, right? We know that white people are also suffering under systems of oppression, be it, you know, class oppression, patriarchy, ableism, et cetera, right? So um, now the, you know, overall trajectory of life expectancy has increased for everybody, but the gap has not narrowed in six decades, right? That is structural racism, right? Why are black people dying younger? It is injustice, it's completely preventable. It is policies and social decisions um, that decide not to respond to the black community in the face of severe need. And then you layer COVID on top of that, right? And in the first six months of 2020, what we saw was that black people's life expectancy went down 2.7 years just in the first six months of the COVID pandemic in the United States, right? And white people's also went down, white people's went down a year, right? The gap, is still there, right? And so, you know, white supremacy is not good for white people either, right? I think that that is an important case to make. And, you know, it's not that I'm saying that the goal should be the black people's life expectancy is 78.8 years like whites. It's like our whole entire society could be healthier and thriving and resilient in a completely different way if we didn't have this particular racial caste system. And yet we can't seem to work our way out of it for all the reasons you all have just described. So um, I think life expectancy is, you know, it's obviously a very crude measure, um, but it's very summative. And I think very powerful in terms of understanding how structural racism is embodied and leads to health outcomes that are unjust, avoidable and preventable. Yeah, I mean, you know, it strikes me. I'm as you're, you're talking, I, I thought about two things. I thought about how important it is that structural racism lens keeps history and this t idea of temporality, because it is the fact that you can look at these things over time and nothing changes. And that's how you know that there's something fishy going on, that you know, as the world changes, as things develop, as we grow, the gaps don't reduce. Everybody does a little bit better, but they, they stay apart. And only a structural lens allows you to get to grips with why. It may, the other thing I thought about was sort of the young people I worked with during the pandemic uh, from Black Caribbean and Black African communities in South London. And we had this these sort of sets of really great conversations sort of talking about how COVID um, had impacted their lives. And, and one of the things that they really sort of talked a lot about was um, how 
They felt it was stealing their futures. And all of this was happening at the same time as the bikes and anti-Black violence. Certain groups who were already overly observed and policed by the state just became more observed and policed by the state in terms of monitoring people breaking COVID laws. And it really just strikes me that as they talk about their future and they talk about the sort of the way in which their parameters for hope and seeing the future get sort of decreased by by COVID is that that's the sort of the lived experience of that that life expectancy narrative. Like from a very early age, you actually can look down the road and say, well, there were these three opportunities for me to get a job and have a career and and now they're gone. And these are the things that feed directly into their experiences of depression and anxiety. Those emotional reactions come from those structural realities and the differential pressures that they have felt because they were already on a lower rung in society. So what, my final question is, how can we move forward and how can we help to, to tackle structural racism and improve health outcomes? What do we do? Well, I mean, I think when it comes to systems of oppression like structural racism, I often think the starting point is consciousness and solidarity. Um, and, you know, it's, again, another reason I'm so thankful for this conversation. Um, and I, I guess I would say, like, from the work that I've been involved in, the folks that I've been learning from, the communities that, that I've been a part of or have been serving as a health worker, doctor, public health person, um, what I have found in terms of like what protects us against the effects of structural racism, what allows us to find joy and thrive and continue to, you know, celebrate our people, our communities, our culture, our work is, you know, the the ability to be together, to convene, to build consciousness together and to be in solidarity together. And I think the more that we do that, the more protected we are, the, the safer we are, the more clearly we are heading in a direction um, that allows for creative change, that allows for transformative change, that allows for racial justice, um, that allows for a new um, way of being together. It's a little touchy-feely, perhaps, but um, but it, but certainly as a as a physician and as a public health person and as a black woman, that's what's worked for me. I'm exactly the same. I mean, I'm I'm so wedded to the idea and the importance of community that I study it for life because that is where sort of the possibility of creation for me comes from you know from the process of collectively organizing and one of the things that i often think about is scale oftentimes we talk about community and we talk about the collective and we often think about it as if it's just these small spaces and it is and and that is a very very important part of it but collectives they grow and and they connect and and that is often sometimes the thing that's seen as most dangerous is when these ideas start to gain currency in other groups and other spaces. You know, Michelle was saying that there are groups who are white groups who experience oppression in lots of different ways. And when you engage in that, those sort of collective opportunities for critical consciousness, you start to see that all of your oppression comes from the same place. And that is the most dangerous thing to the system. When the left stops realizing that we're not fighting individual battles, that climate change is not separate from racial justice, is not separate from gender justice, that actually they are all the same fight against the same ways of being in the world. 
any change that has ever happened in the history of time has come from mass mobilization that has shifted political will and made the mainstream idea uncomfortable or impossible to maintain and sustain. That's the only way. That's the only way structures change. But as Michelle said, it's the only way we, we stay alive. I couldn't agree more with what Michelle and Michelle have said. I, I think that I really kind of resonate with, with the importance of solidarity, with the importance of transnational critical consciousness uh, when thinking about these issues. But I think also we need to make sure we, we think forward as well and we think about you know, making space for a radical imagination, what can happen, that's already happening in, in small pockets, smaller pockets, you know, exactly as Rochelle said, driven by innovative communities. Communities who are most marginalised are the ones that are forced to be innovative because they don't have a choice. And so we need to really amplify them, uh, celebrate the radical imagination that driving forward, the fact that really we need abolition of the overarching structures, not just piecemeal reform that we're going to be uh, offered. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Thank you for all your thoughts and ideas and experiences as well, and just you know what it's like to to go through these these issues. Thanks for asking, Dylan. It's great. Absolutely, yeah. And again, a real honor to be a part of the conversation and um, to represent the Black American experience, and also to just really learn from what the struggle looks like in the UK. So thank you um, again for the invitation. Yeah, thank, thanks very much for having us. I'm really grateful to have been asked and, and to have the opportunity to, to kind of share this space with the likes of Michelle and, and Rochelle and, and, and you, Dylan, as well. Thank you to my guests, Michelle Morse, Rochelle Burgess and Kavian Kulasubanathan. This episode was produced by Mitha Hawk and Juhi Um, editing by Sam Gomberg and music by Mitha Hawk. For more information about race and health, visit our website at www.racesandhealth.org. Thank you.